afternoon, everybody. My name is Ben, and this is Justin, and you are listening to The Pastor's Study, where you're working through the book Evangelical Theology by Michael F. Berg, and we are excited that you have joined us today. We're picking up uh, right where we left yep. off in the middle of the chapter. Uh, it is a thick chapter, it, it and is. we probably won't even get through it all no. today. So we're in chapter 2.5, looking at you know how God reveals himself to us, and we talked at the end of last week and said that there are several different kinds of revelation and we looked at natural revelation special revelation and christological revelation and so so today we're going to be focusing on natural revelation we're going to look at natural revelation and then what it leads to which is natural theology and so we're going to look at you know we're going to have kind of a basic philosophy 101 philosophy of the existence of God today. And, and I I was never very good in philosophy class, <laughs> so this should be... Well, that'll work out, because... Good. Yeah, as I, yeah, I have a double major in philosophy, oh, good. So, so, it, so you know, it works out. I understand these topologies and all of these different things yeah, that we're getting into. You're already speaking another language. Yes. Okay? You gotta, you're going to have to dumb it down for me and the viewers. So okay? we, will, we will get in and we will talk about it, and I think... But this is really interesting stuff, and I think once we really kind of do get into it, it's really not that difficult to understand. And we can get into some difficult philosophy, but this is pretty, you know, I think this is pretty simple to understand. Maybe not when you really start diving into all the objections and everything, but understanding the theories themselves are not that difficult. So he begins just talking about natural revelation and just that innate knowledge that we have of God because of how he has created this world, how he has created the universe, what he has shown of himself through that action. Yeah, it's something that we kind of discussed a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in, previous, in previous weeks about how kind of just the natural order of things, uh, the way the world was created, the way that we can just look around and go, mm, I don't think this was an accident. Right. Uh, and, and I think the... the he does a really good job of digging into maybe a little bit more detail of what that means. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. You know, he brings up um, what Calvin and others called the divine sense. Mm-hmm. Just this innate knowledge that it seems that God has put into all humans to um, seek out God. That there is some kind of understanding that there is a God that exists. And we really do see that across cultures and across generations, and that there is, there does seem to be this divine sense. And I think it makes sense with what the scripture says. If we're all made in the image of God, if there is, even if it's a marred image now because of sin, mm-hmm. there we're going to seek to understand that better. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, you know, what would you say then to someone who was an atheist and they, yeah. you know maybe they said you know i've done the research i've looked and there's nothing there's, there's, i've just come to this conclusion yeah i mean and i can i can pull out you know where <laughs> right now where, where, be books back where, yeah where's dr dennett's book uh-huh. that he signed for me um let's see because he actually makes a really good um atheistic argument about that but it is not here so you know we do have you know whether it's just somebody in our life or a you know professor like Daniel Dennett who came and when I was at seminary in New Orleans came and did a um, debate mm-hmm. and so you know you got to hear him talk to somebody who 
was not just a theist but a Christian and, and talk about these things. And he just kind of, you know, brings it out from more of a sociological sense that he would argue that we have this kind of belief in God because it's instilled to us from a young age because of the sociological sense that it's not an more innate a, thing about a who we are. Versus a nature right. Kind of and, and I think that, you know, and, I, and I'll say, you know, um, I think it's flawed, but I mean, there is an argument to, to be made there, and he has made a name for himself and wrote a big long book about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think what you do is you talk to somebody as you begin, you want to understand where they are. You know, I'll say, you know, most of the people that I know, even if they would call themselves atheist, usually end up being more agnostic than atheistic. They're not to the point where they're going to say I 100% believe there's not a God because they're going to say I can't say one way or the other. There's no proof that there is. There's no proof that there isn't. And I think that's an easier place to start with somebody. And I think even if you're talking with somebody who would claim to be atheistic, I think it's not that hard to get to that place. And I think that's when we begin to bring in some of these theories we're going to get to in a minute and start to understand, you know, where can we get that person to begin to buy into some of these basic statements. And so that's, I think that's why we want to look at something like this is if we do get into those conversations, if we have a friend who is agnostic or we have a friend who is atheist, well, how do you explain the beginnings of the universe? How do you explain that there seems to be some kind of design in creation. How do you explain that we can see a through line of morality throughout all of people where there are certain things that almost always we agree on that are right and wrong, or even if there aren't, we always agree that there is some right and wrong. And so I think that's more where you go with that. And I, I think there... You know, and I think he does a good job here of saying, you know, why is it that, you know, everybody doesn't find the true God? Or even somebody that's agnostic, why do they get to a place where... Because I would say that's kind of an idolatry as well. Even an atheism is an idolatry of a sorts. And he said, you know, that's because of how not only our own lives, but everything has been marred by sin. And I think that's the best way to look at it. And I don't know if that's something that I would necessarily in the first conversation bring up with somebody that I'm talking to that is atheist or agnostic, but it is there, and it's a way for us to understand why it is that, that we have people that even though there does seem to be some divine sense, some sense of a knowledge of God in everybody, why some people don't have it as strongly or why some people have been able to push it back or ignore it is because of just the truth of sin. Yeah, and I and I, I feel the need, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but I feel the need to state it. Um, you know, wh whether or not you have friends or family who maybe are agnostic or atheist, yeah. uh, it does not have to be a, a fight or a battle, and it never should be. Oh, absolutely not. Um, it, I, I don't know about you, I grew up in a, in a youth group and sometimes a culture where it was like, you had to fight and defend oh, yeah. everything. And yeah. like, just a conversation... I've Absolutely. Yeah, we've got um, we've got some really good friends, Jennifer and I, that um, are, you know, I would say that they're somewhere between agnostic and theist, but definitely not Christian. Um, they both grew up in, you know, Christian homes, but they've, they've moved away from that in their thinking. And we've had these conversations, and I think it does. It has to be a conversation where 
you go in, and even if you don't agree with where they're at, you respect their belief, and you respect their right to believe it, and you hope that they're doing the same in you, and you can have some fantastic conversations if you go in with just, you know, let's talk about these things. Let's, you know, I'm not going to come in yelling and screaming, this isn't a really bad movie about um, the terrible atheistic professor that's trying to tear yeah. down everybody's yeah. Christianity, which ultimately I can say, at least in my experience, are very few, never and, been the they're very right few and far between. <laughs> I, I'm sure there are some out there. Um, but, you know, and I definitely had some professors that would push back on me, but they were doing it so that I could do the assignment. Right, yeah. You know, it was, you know, I never had anybody that pushed back on, you know, if I could argue my Christian belief well in a philosophy class, I did just as well in that class as the person that argued their atheistic beliefs well. And so, but yes, I think you're right. We have to acknowledge that, that we can't look at it as a fight. And I think, you know, apologetics gets a bad rap at times. We do want to know these things. We do want to be able to speak to it. But, you know, what it comes down to is we, we serve a God that doesn't need us to fight for him. No, yeah. I mean, and we're talking here. He's already revealed himself in so many ways. Exactly. And we just want to, we want to be the person that can open up somebody's eyes to what they haven't seen yet. And if we go in it like, you know, a paladin, you know, going in to smite everybody, then yeah. they're never going to hear what we have to say. I, um, again, this is a little off, but, like, I, uh, I went back and was watching, uh, the Ken Ham versus Bill Nye debate. Yeah. And I'm watching the debate, and they were pretty well to, uh, respectful of each other in that. But then I watched, there's another video of Ken Ham giving him a tour of the, of the Ark, and they're talking over each other the whole time. They're right. arguing with each other, they're fighting, like, and neither one of them are able to listen to each right. other about, you know, and get Andy the Prophet. And just, yeah, I, I yeah, a great example of that point. I mean, I think that's, and I think that's a really valid thing that just in general we have to think about. There's a whole lot going on these days. I, you know, I keep having conversations with people, or I'll, I'll read things online about families being broken apart over, you know, differences in belief, whether it is differences in religious belief or differences in political belief. Sometimes those things go together. And everybody's looking at it and having these battles. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, yeah, we, we hold these things really strongly, but we have to come at it from a place of love. And we want to con we want to convince somebody of the truth of the Scripture. We want to convince somebody of the truth of the Gospel. Absolutely. But we want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that's actually going to do that. Because yeah. I think we have a way, you know, if we go into it, looking at it as a battle, like, you know, what you're talking about there, because I've seen that video of yeah. Ham and Nye. If we go into it like those two guys do, then we're never going to be able to really bring somebody over onto our side. If anything, it puts a bad taste in them. You know, you watch these two people who are supposed to be right. heads of their field, and you just kind of go, I don't want to hang out yeah. with either of them. And I don't you know, know if you've ever seen any of these, but, you know, um, oh, I'm going blank on the other ones now. Oh, no. So, Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint used to do okay. debates, and these two guys actually had a really strong friendship, as much as their beliefs were extremely like divergent, yeah. but they would be able to talk to those things, and you saw, you know, in, you know, especially in the way that you would see 
Falwell relating to Flint, he was desperately trying to bring his friend into a right belief, into a relationship with Christ as they were going and, and talking about these things that were dealing with First Amendment rights and pornography and all of these things. So we've kind of gone off on a little bit of a yep. tangent, but I think it's a really good one as we're thinking about these things because I think this is one of those places where we may be talking to somebody who thinks vastly different than we do. And so we're looking and seeing all that God has done, all that he has created. And, you know, I, I think he does a really good job here of talking about how Paul does this. He says, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so here's Paul talking in Romans and saying, look, you know, he's revealed himself. Mm -hmm. And he mentions here, and it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, when Paul begins at creation when he is talking to the people in Athens. You know, here he is, he's talking to a, there may be no Jews in this audience. It may be completely Greek in as he's talking yeah. in the Areopagus. And so he's there, he's talking to these leaders, these learned people who have their own beliefs, and he begins at the place where he felt like, I can find the most agreement with these people, which is, I'm going to start at creation. I'm going to start at the very beginning that we can believe that there is a God. And what's interesting in there is he finds the good places within their belief system. And I think that's what we want to do. We want to have that conversation so that we can latch on to what that person we're talking about has right. So, you know, here he's going, I've been walking around this town, what did I see? Oh, there was this idol over here to an unknown God, because they wanted to make sure if there was some God out there we're not worshiping, that we're making sure they're getting their due, too. And so he brings in and says, let me tell you about that unknown God. And I think that's what we want to do as we talk to our friends, as we go through these things, find the things that we have in common. Find that, that right belief that you can begin with, that you can, you know, you can honor that strength. Exactly. And then begin to move them into those different places. I really like this uh, sentence, and um, I'm just going to read it real quick. It yeah. Says, God's natural revelation, both innate and inferred, leads to knowledge of God's existence, authority, power, benevolence, providence, omnipresence, self-sufficiency, transcendence, imminence, invisibility, and glory. I, I just think it's so great that not only uh, do we learn a little bit about God, but like it shows all of these different aspects. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, we begin to see just all of these things that he does. And I think, you know, one of the things that he says here later in this beginning section of this, the truth and knowledge of God mediated through creation are real and discernible. All of humanity knows something of God innately and experientially. God's existence and being are understood from what he has created. However, the presence of sin in the human heart means that this knowledge becomes traumatic because it implies God's authority over them and their accountability to God. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of us, you know, fall down in humanity is if we're going to acknowledge that God exists because of what we've seen, we have to acknowledge more than that. I think it's... Um I think it's interesting too, because I think I think reading this, I can be like, yeah, I get that and I understand that. But I think if you were to tell an atheist like you're suppressing a traumatic 
experience, basically. Right. By not believing in God. It's like, you just start to sound a little crazy. And, like, I think it's a great example, and I think it's a great way of explaining it, but, like, at the same time, yeah. I don't know that that plays out as practically. As I think that's one of those <laughs> things that plays out for us to understand what's exactly. going on more than, than we're bringing it up. Mm-hmm. But it is a really interesting thing to look at and see how this ties into idolatry ultimately because you know i think you've probably heard me say it because i say it fairly often but you know a lot of our sin i think our main underlying sin is an idolatry of self we want to worship ourselves as god we want to put ourselves up here and if we acknowledge once we acknowledge the existence of god we're no longer there anymore and i think that's a lot i think that's what he's getting at here is that's that's a trauma yeah. When you look at it and you start to break down and realize, I'm not God. The world does not revolve around me. Yeah. And that's a that's a difficult thing to get into. What did you think about this little sidebar? I was, little I was box hoping you would bring it up. Cause, on Christian revelation and indigenous religions, because I think well, it's excellent. It's funny, because we, we were, what, talking two weeks ago after the podcast, we ended up spending like an hour talking about it. Right. Um, and I, I really like that he even spent a half a second thinking about it. Um, this idea that some of these indigenous religions or some of these other religions could have been, you know, through their natural revelation of seeing the world gone, you know, hey, this is, this is, yep. there's a God out here that's doing this and they're worshiping him. Um, I think it's, uh, I think, I, let me see if I can find that sentence that he said. Um, yeah, it was the last, the last line. Yeah, um, I love it. The quote there. Um, I'll read the whole thing. It says, uh, African traditional religion cannot be said to be on par with the particular religion of Israel, which was revealed by God. Yet, God's general revelation of himself prepared the way for and undergirded the spreading of the gospel like wildfire among Africans. I think that's like oh, yeah. this idea that like it's not the same. It's not equal to, but it was the it was the baseline. It was where right. a lot of people started. It gave a place for you know Christianity to build on because they were already they were already worshiping in a way that was going to come in, yeah. and there was going to be you know some compatibility there to be able yeah. to speak to the truths of Scripture. And so you know, and I think we have to think about that you know even as we're you know dealing with people in you know our own situation you know there's been times where i've led people to christ that seem to have this religion that was built on i mean didn't seem to they told me they did you know their kind of whole worldview was built on what they had learned about right and wrong from reading comic books from a young kid up until their 20s and there's a lot about good and evil in there and there's a lot about right and wrong and it gave me a place to start and that's kind of what's going on here is you know, finding those things that we can latch on to. If we are going to be sharing the gospel with a Muslim, where can where can we understand about it? What can we understand about Islam that we can point to and say, "Here's a good thing about this that we can tie in and begin to talk about the truths of Scripture." Now, obviously, there are definitely some things that that they get wrong, but how can we tie into what is good in that? And if you know, if you're talking with you know, again, even with somebody who is atheist or agnostic, they may have a really good sense of what we're talking about now through Micah about, you know, what justice looks like, mm-hmm. what right and wrong looks like. They may have a strong moral compass. Let's start there. Let's get into that. 
and say, here's what's right. Let's talk about how Christianity is going to build that up and we can see the truth in those yeah, things. I think it goes directly back to that that, um, that example with Paul and that unknown. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just where can you find the similarities? Right. And that, that entrance point. Kind exactly. Of and it, you know, where do you find the point to start having a conversation mm-hmm. is, is a lot of it. So we go from natural revelation into natural theology where we start to get into these kind of basic arguments for the existence of God that are just based on natural revelation and philosophy. So we're not in this place beginning to bring in scripture. We're not even arguing necessarily for the existence of the Christian God that we know, the triune God that we've been talking about the whole time. We are just talking about the existence of God. And it can be a good starting point with some people who may not understand this yet. And, you know, goes in and talks about, you know, how Thomas Aquinas was a natural theologian, how he began to talk about it. He talked some about how Carbar just completely threw it all out. out. Um, He says, natural theology is the doctrine of a union of man with God existing outside God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And I don't think Barrett Barth is wrong there, because I don't, but I don't think we stop at these. No, yeah, yeah. We don't stop at these theories. It's the very, very baseline of understanding. And it's also such a, like, I mean, I get why he would be so quick to throw it all out, especially with the culture of, you know, where he was in that right. point. But, like, at the same time, like, there, I think there's still something to be gleaned from a, a natural revelation. Oh, absolutely. And that's, and so that's, you know, so as you're thinking about this, as you're, as you're hearing this, you know, understand, you know, this is just real baseline, does God exist? We're arguing that he does, and here are some of the theories that you go from that. But we're, you have to have the scripture to come in. You have to have that special revelation and that Christological revelation that we're going to focus on next week to really begin to have not just a theism, but to move into a place where you are worshiping Christ, where you are understanding the God of the Bible. Right now, we're just kind of arguing for theism in general, mostly, you know, arguing on some level, arguing for a creator, but I think there's a little more here than just that, especially as we look at the first argument, the ontological argument. This is the argument for the existence of God based on the necessity of influence. So, what do you what do you think about this argument? And I'll read the read it yeah. in a second. Um, see, this this is where my like lack of uh, right. philosophy is just like I look at this and I go, this is this is English still, right? Right. Um, but I I think the the idea of there has to be a God because there has to be a God just like that's the part that confuses me. But it makes sense at the same time of like, right. I, this is probably my least, this is the one I'd like to... The, the, the least grabs makes, you. Yeah, it's, and so, what it comes down to is, this is the argument for God based on the definition of who God is. Yeah. And, you know, so if we define this as God, then he has to exist. So I'll just, I'll read, um, I, I, I like Canterbury's better than mm. the, you know, more modern one. We'll read both of them, but I can't, Anselm, of Canterbury is just, this is the classic one. God is the being greater than which none can be conceived. 
But if God does not exist, then one could conceive of still being greater, still greater being that does exist. Therefore, God must exist. Okay, you know what this is? This is just like when you use a word to define a word. Like when Absolutely. You, it's that's like exactly when you look what's at the going dictionary on. Here. And they're trying to define a word, but they use the word in the sentence. Right. Yeah, like, no. That's, and so that's, that's what's happening here. And so you're saying, okay, God is that being of which we can't even conceive of anything greater. Existence is greater than non-existence, so he must exist because it is greater to exist than not to exist, and if he is the greatest being, he has to exist. And so that's the that's essentially the argument here, and, you know, in other words, the way he puts it here in more contemporary language, God has all perfections, existence is, existence is a perfection, therefore God exists. I'm going to need and I think what's interesting about this one, I don't know if it is one that is going to... I don't know that's going to help convince anybody. I don't think that's going to help convince anybody that doesn't already believe in God. Exactly. And But as you begin to look at the objections, it's a hard one to refute. And yeah. it is one of those things. And that's what's interesting about all of these, because these are all classic arguments for God that have been around for centuries and they're all really hard to refute. And so when you get into this, because it is just saying, man, it's, it's, ne it's necessary that God exists. Because it just, in, just in the being, he has to. And, you know, and it's interesting here, because we're kind of talking about it. It says, while the argument sounds fallacious, demonstrating exactly where the fallacy lies is proven quite difficult. And so, and, but he says the same thing that you say, that, you know, it almost seems like we're playing word games with God. And, you know, and, and I get that. And I think that's why it's kind of one of those more difficult ones to get a handle on. But it's a strong argument just in the fact that it's really difficult to say that, it, that, it, yeah. that it's not true. So what do you think? Let's move on to the next one. What about the cosmological yeah, This one argument? made a whole lot more sense Okay. Um, basically, it's, it's the argument for the existence of God based on uh, the first cause of the cosmos. So basically, right. the world exists. It had to have come from somewhere. So, right. so God. Um, you know, whatever, whatever existed has a cause. The universe exists. So therefore, the universe has a cause. Right. Whether that's God or something else. Right. Um, you know, I, I think... You know, and, and you posit God as, as that reason for that. And, you know, and I think it's, again, very strong argument, very hard to... ...doesn't do it well, because, I mean, we look and there is nothing that we can say exists that doesn't exist, or that doesn't have a beginning, and... that was not created and I think you know you do I don't think I've read I know that there are those who would just posit that that thing is the universe itself sure and um, so, but I think it's again a strong argument we look and we see that it's got the universe has to have a beginning existence has to have a beginning it's got to have that starting point and God is that starting point and it just comes from the basic intuition that we have and I think it is the combination of that natural revelation and that divine sense that we have innately to be able to, to talk about that. 
Now, I think, honestly, these last two, to me, are probably the strongest. Mm -hmm. Because it's where we begin to get into some things that I think probably make the most sense to us. I think more people can agree on these things as well. And so, you know, so you have the theological argument, which is, you know, very basically that we look at this universe, we look at our bodies, we look at this earth, we look at the solar system, we look at a cell, and we can even go to subatomic things, and we see that everything intricately works the way that it is supposed to work, and it seems like there has to be some sort of intelligent design behind it, therefore there has to be a designer, and that designer is God. Yeah, and I think um, the hardest objection to to this is people, you know, scientists, philosophers, they look at all the evil that's in the world, and they right. go, so you're telling me that this God created all this evil, and I mean, when we take that into a Christian perspective, we know that sin is what created right. the world. Um, but I could see that from a scientific or more philosophical view, they look at this and go, well, this, this right. must be evil if they create it. Right, the so. stuff that doesn't work. And we'll get into that when we begin, when we dive in a little deeper into God's goodness and talk about the problem of evil, because that is one of those, you know, again, one of those basic philosophical questions that's hard to answer. You know, we can look at the way that it's been answered historically, but it's always going to have problems because it's one of those things that, that is hard to understand and hard to look at. But I think it is that we look around and even a lot of atheists will agree to the infinitesimal probability of all that is existing being by chance. And that's where we get into and begin to look at this and go, there has to be a creator. And then we can argue that that creator is God. And we go from that to creation of the world to really another argument that's somewhat about creation, which is the moral argument, the argument for the existence of God based on the existence of objective moral values. Yeah. And this is essentially this idea that we all, for the most part, have an agreement on what is good and what is bad. Right. Um, And how is it that the most of the population would understand that this is good and bad? And I think Lewis makes a, in mere Christianity, he just, he lays this out really well. Everyone knows and so believes that there are objective moral truths. Objective moral laws are peculiar in that they are quite unlike laws of nature and natural facts. The hypothesis that there is an intelligence behind or beyond the natural facts that implants the knowledge of right and wrong in us and serves as the foundation for the objectivity of such judgments is the best or a good explanation of our intuitions of objective moral facts. Therefore, the existence and nature of objective moral facts supports the existence of an intelligent behi- intelligence behind them serving as their basis and foundation. So essentially we're saying, you know, if we can say that something is good or evil, there's got to be something there that has put that in us. And even if we're going to just argue that something is evil... There's got to be a good to compare it to. And I think that's where, I think that's one of the reasons that this is so compelling. Because I think that even if you were talking to somebody who didn't agree with you on everything morally, there would be certain things, certain very basic things that in the end we could all agree on were right and wrong. Where does that come from? 
And that's where this argument, this basic argument for an understanding of of the existence of God comes from. Now, the rest of the, this section uh, basically is talking about Barth. And, right. Uh, his, basically him tearing this natural theology and this natural uh, <laughs> right. natural revelation apart uh, yeah. at all scenes. And I, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I think it's worth at least talking about the end part. Oh, absolutely. Um, so jump in there. Yeah, of, of, of kind of like, uh, so what, what, what do young evangelicals need to know about Karl Barth is what he says. Right. Um, and the first thing is that he wasn't an evangelical. Right. This is, you know, this is not his right. um, cup of tea necessarily. He was an, a European Protestant who was wrestling with all this stuff the same way that we are, just in very different cultural, you know, right. during World War I. I was about to say, we have to understand this is a German Christian mm. theologian Curating. dealing with World War One and World War Two and all of the evil that he's seeing around himself in that. Yeah. So he's looking at a lot of this, this natural revelation and going, right. I, I'm looking around and it's all, this is a... This is a dump. Yeah. This is terrible. <laughs> and I think it's interesting, you know, and he says he's he's on the side of the good guys when it comes to major ecumenical yeah. doctrines about the Trinity as atonement. He's decidedly orthodox and reformed in his basic stance, so he sees the councils and confessions mainly as guidelines rather than holy writ. And he kind of walks through it, and, you know, it's interesting where that stuff kind of bashes head. Yeah, and and I think I I, I find it worthwhile that uh, Michael Byrd decided to take a second because I mean this is not the first time he's mentioned Barth and I was talking right. before we started that I had never really heard about this guy until until we really got into this but like this is he is a perfect example of somebody who he didn't get it all right but right. none of them get it all right he just has some really great ideas absolutely and some really great thoughts and he makes a point in here and I mean and I I definitely don't agree with everything that that Barth wrote and, and taught. But I think he's right here on how we can benefit from this. He says his theology is arguably the most Christocentric ever devised. He has a strong emphasis on God's transcendence, freedom, love, and otherness. Barth stresses the singular power and authority of the Word of God in its threefold form of incarnation, preaching, and scripture. And so, I mean, I think that's just understanding where he's coming from, understanding being able to read. I mean, there's there's plenty of guys that are around right now that I'll read most of what they put out, but I don't agree with them on everything. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I've got this big red book right here on Providence by Piper that I know I'm going to disagree with probably about <laughs> 75% of what's in there. Sure. But I'm really excited to read it because he's going to make me think. Yep. He's going to, you know, have me wrestle with Scripture. And, you know, even reading somebody who I think is great and I agree with a lot of things, this is one of those things I know I'm going to disagree with him on, but this is his, probably the major work of his life, and I'm excited yep. to get into that and, and begin to look at it. And so we want to learn from those who have a lot of good to bring in, even if we don't agree with them every single point exactly. of the time. And so, you know, I think that's what's interesting is I think that's been a lot of the conversation today is how do we talk to those that we don't agree with, whether they are fellow Christians that we might disagree with a point of doctrine on, or whether it is somebody that we are trying to um, convince of the truth of the gospel. And I think it really comes into not demonizing them and truly having a respect for their right to believe, even if we think their belief is wrong. Yeah. And they have a right to believe that. Do we want them to believe wrong? Absolutely not. 
We want them. We want them to come to. You know, if they're a non-Christian, we want them to come to a saving faith in Christ. We want them following Jesus because we know what that abundant life looks like. And when you're looking at somebody who is in Christ, who has that relationship, you know, we just want, you know, we want, we want them to, to think correctly on these things, just like we want ourselves to. Exactly. And I love having those conversations with brothers and sisters that I might disagree with something on as long as we're doing it well. Yeah. And I think what's funny at times is I think that, you know, whether it's arguments that I see online or conversations that I've even seen people have, I think sometimes we get more heated on these minor things of oh, doctrine yeah. oh, with yeah. other Christians than we do on just the basic understandings of the gospel. And we just have to be, we have to understand that other people are watching us and other yep. people are listening to us and other people are seeing how we disagree. And if if we're breaking down and bashing each other over these minor things, then they're not going to feel comfortable coming and talking to us when they have a major disagreement with, you know, what we believe, and we're not going to have that opportunity to speak the truth in front of them. It is, it is much more difficult to preach unity when all you do is divide. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I think if more people knew the history of denominations, they would never, they would never want to come to church because... All the denominations have split off, and, and they all mostly came from the same, right. you know, two or whatever. So right. it's like, it's it's a bummer because it's right. People are watching, and people are they taking are. it as an example. Absolutely. And so, as I close in prayer, I mean, that's what I'm going to pray for today. Is that you know this knowledge that we're getting as we begin to understand God better, that that allows us to be able to understand the people around us better as well and that we're able to come and and speak these truths that we're learning into their lives but do so in a way that is powerful and and with love father god i thank you i thank you for this day i thank you for the opportunity to come and, and talk about you or to to talk about these philosophical truths to talk about how you have shown yourself to all of us in the world Lord, I pray that as we talk with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, as we have conversations out there with those who don't yet believe, that you would give us the opportunity to speak well, to have fruitful conversations, to be able to show your truth and do so with a loving heart, that we would share the way you would share, that we are able to come forward with respect, even when we disagree with someone. But we thank you, we praise, we glorify your name. Amen.